Well, it's Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And while it's obviously a day for us as Christians to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and and to thank God for victory over sin and death and to honor him for gifting people with the ingenuity and craftsmanship to create the Reese's peanut butter cup. While Easter is obviously a day of celebration for the follower of Jesus. I want to admit up front that it seems like the older I get, the more I struggle with Easter because it reminds me that I'm supposed to live in victory over sin, but I am increasingly aware of being discouraged by and defeated by sin. And and I feel like I mostly live in defeat and not victory. Sorry, not the feel-good sermon intro you were looking for on Easter, eh? (laughs) Sorry to disappoint, get in line. I'll add you to what is already a long list. So, Easter feels to me like it's a mix of both celebration and mourning because even though I believe in principle that I have been set free by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and I celebrate that truth by eating an ungodly amount of candy, the truth is that for me to live in practice in the resurrection power of knowing that I am free from sin does not feel to me natural or, or deserved or even right. It often goes like this. It's Easter Sunday, and just like every other Sunday, it's, it's right after church, and I'm encouraged, and I've just proclaimed the greatness of God among the fellowship of believers, and I've reclaimed anew the, the precious truth of the perfect and sinless life of Jesus that was sacrificed and raised to bring me victory over sin. But then it usually takes all of about 30 seconds in the car on the way home, and I remember something dumb I said to someone or a dozen such dumb things, and Then I think about how I should have said this differently in the sermon, or I think about this downer sermon intro and how it probably disappointed hundreds of people. And it suddenly feels like, well, that didn't take long. (laughs) Scott Wakefield living the victorious Christian life. And while I'm being a smidge humorous and self-deprecatory, a smidge, of, a smidge of humor is all I've got, y'all. While I'm satirizing myself a bit and sliding in references to candy, I'm, I'm actually totally serious. I think that for most of us, we'd have to admit that we likely struggle with some Easter and resurrection power content that we're supposed to take in every year. We struggle some with Easter and resurrection and the empty tomb and and victory over sin as feeling a bit far off and and hard to track with, not merely because it involved the supernatural intervention of God 2,000 years ago, but because the truth of the matter is that it makes clear to us as Christians that instead of experiencing freedom from the constant weight and failure of our own sin and brokenness with which we are all too familiar, we are often more aware of what it feels like to be a sinner in a constantly frustrating and broken world that for us feels like not so much saint who lives in victory through the righteousness of Christ, let alone being aware of what it feels like to be resurrected. Truth is, if we follow Christ, we likely come to Easter struggling with concepts like resurrection power over sin Because we know sinful failure so well. We know intimately 
We know the despair of turning to the addiction of the pantry or the screen or the illicit relationship or the evil thought for the hundredth or the thousandth or the ten thousandth time, even after we have countless more times repented and committed ourselves to more godly living. We know what it is like to live as the enemy of God because we lie and we lust and steal and covet and and hold a grudge and we seethe in quiet, unjustified, self-righteous anger, even against the very ones we claim to love. We know the always nagging feeling of defeat and failure as we see in ourselves and in others the ongoing consequences of our past foolishness. And so, so we know intimately, we've experienced how it feels to warrant the condemnation and wrath of God, at least at some level, because we have lived as sinful rebels against God's holy law. And so we become tightly wound balls of sin and shame because we know in practice that we do not deserve God's grace. And and, and to make matters worse, (laughs) because we're skilled blame shifters, we confirm in each other this condemnation of sin and shame. And we say to one another, that's right, you tightly wound ball of sin and shame, you are indeed a cosmic failure because you've failed me. You're a cosmic failure because you failed me. And not only am I going to make sure you suffer for it in our relationship, I'm going to make sure everyone else knows you're a failure because, cherry on top, I'm going to go all over social media and make thinly veiled snarky comments that may not use your name, but will communicate plenty. And so, even though <laughs> on Easter... We gather in worship with the body of Christ to sing and to pray and to, to declare God's goodness and grace to us. And we're, we're here today, especially of all days on Easter, to wonder in amazement that God has raised Jesus from the dead to thank him for victory over sin and for precious peanut butter cups. Even though we believe in principle that we have been set free by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to live as if truly free, to live as if truly free does not only not feel natural, it seems elusive to us because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel right according to the self-righteous, man-centered measures we have learned from and confirmed in one another. But friends, <laughs> followers of the risen Savior who left an empty tomb for us to see that we are likewise alive, as we'll see today in the first half of Romans 6, The accomplished fact of our own resurrection with Christ is the power we're called to claim for greater holiness and victory over sin. His resurrection is our resurrection. Jump in at Romans 6. Lots of ground to cover, not lots of time. So let's boogie. Starting at verse 1, where we pick up in the middle of an ongoing conversation where Paul is asking two rhetorical questions. First one's this. Verse 1, what shall we say then? This is one of six places in Romans where Paul asks this exact question, what shall we say then, as a way of sort of anticipating an objection so that he could then respond to it. So he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If, as Paul has just said in Romans 5.20, if God counteracted the increase of sin by ensuring that grace abounded all the more in the person of Jesus, then according to Paul's objectors here, 
then why not just sin more so that God will grace more? If, if God's abounding grace, his over and above what is needed grace in Jesus, if that's how he undoes and he counteracts sin in us, then why not just sin more so that there can be more grace? That'll glorify God more, right? That's at least how Paul's objectors here were arguing, and they were afraid that, that more sin would be the result of Paul's free grace message. They were worried that, that, that preaching this grace as a, as a free and unearned gift, that it not only cheapens Christ's work, they also feared that people would further rationalize sin. Like if I've got grace to cover my tracks, I might as well just send it up until heaven. Woohoo! Too much grace just becomes license for sin, is what they were saying. Some of you have heard versions of that in your Christian past. Too much grace too easily becomes a license for sin. So, in order to answer their objection, Paul asks their question for them in, in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin so the grace may abound? And then he answers them in verse 2. He says, by no means, no way, of course not. Duh, Paul says. But then, from here through verse 10, he gives a surprising and frankly fairly radical answer for why Christians do not continue to sin so the grace may abound. He says, by no means we should not sin so the grace continues to abound. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Paul answers their objection here. Are we to continue in sin so the grace may abound? By introducing us to what I'm going to call the Godfather response to sin. It's sort of like saying, uh, sin, you're nothing to me. You're, you're dead to me. Clearly, that's a terrible godfather. You get the point. Sin, you're dead to me. Paul says, how can someone who is dead to sin, not made alive by it, how can someone who is dead to sin be excited by it anymore? How can someone for whom sin doesn't do anything be made alive by it? If it doesn't do anything for them, that's kind of what Paul says. In other words, the other side of that is that if someone has Jesus, if someone follows Jesus, then that someone isn't made alive. They're not animated by that sin. It doesn't hold the appeal it once did. It doesn't turn them on. It's dead to them. It's not going to do what it used to do for them. If they're dead to it, why worry about your objection of more sin will equal more grace. So sin it up. Now, Here's where Paul's answer begins to sound somewhat radical as to why someone who has Jesus won't sin more if they have grace. Look at verses three and following. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Don't you know that in baptism, because your salvation is fundamentally rooted in the work of Christ and your union with him, do you not know that if you've been baptized into Christ, you were likewise baptized into death along with him? Don't you know that when you say yes to Christ by faith in him, that your old self died with Jesus? Yeah, look, we were buried, therefore, verse 4, we were therefore buried with him by baptism, 
into death, buried into our own death to sin and the old self and the old ways that used to make us alive in order that, and here comes the resurrection part, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is radical stuff here. We who follow Jesus by faith in his completed work to live as sinless for us, when we follow Jesus by faith and we are baptized, Paul says, we were buried with Christ in those waters. And then we were raised with Christ by the glory of the Father. To confirm it as the supernatural work of God in us, we were buried with Christ in baptism. And he says, why? In order that we too, we also, like Christ, along with Christ, in union with Christ, we too might walk, might live day by day, not just in new life, but notice Paul says, in newness of life, as a, as a more emphatic adjective to, to communicate that being in union with Christ in his baptism and resurrection means that we are in a state of being new. It's a new state of being entirely, Paul says. When you say yes to Jesus and you receive him by faith and your heart is soft to hear the voice of the Spirit of God calling you and you obey in the waters of baptism, the old you dies and the filthy rags of your self-righteousness that used to make you alive, they're left to drown in the bottom of those waters and the new you, which is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the new you is raised because Christ himself has in his own life, death, and resurrection, conquered for you the powers of sin and death and hell that formerly condemned you. The radical truth Paul's teaching here is that for, for more fundamentally true than any of us can possibly fathom or even dare to believe about ourselves, the radical truth is at a more fundamental level, than we've probably thought. <laughs> Only something as awesome as the supernatural work of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony can resurrect your dead and sinful heart. Without Christ, you haven't the slightest chance of being a child of God in his forever family. If the old you hasn't died and been resurrected, you haven't the slightest chance. But Paul explains further that if you have Jesus, you have everything you already need. He explains further in 5 through 10 here. Look at this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice that Paul uses the word united here twice in verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, not perhaps, not maybe, but we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our identification, our identification with Christ, Paul says, is so, it's so close and so certain that if we have been, and notice the past tense, if we have been baptized with him into our own death, then we are likewise resurrected with him. This means 
And, and here's perhaps the most radical part of what Paul's saying in this passage. This means that if we have Christ as Savior and as Lord, because we've apprehended him by faith, then we already have victory over the power of sin that formerly condemned us. Paul is talking here about this victory over sin as an accomplished fact for the believer in Christ, which is why he can say this. Look at verse six. He says, we know, meaning because Christ has achieved salvation for us and we are in union with him in his death and resurrection, we know that our old self, the old man, who was formerly made alive by sin, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We know, Paul says, that if we've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, that our old self died. And then second half of verse six here, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that believers could then live from the same power of the already accomplished resurrection of Jesus, that as he's saying here in the argument, was also our resurrection. Which means that our former disposition towards sin, our former hunger for sin that we thought made us alive, but actually made us dead, our hunger for sin will be starved for want of a host to feed it. For one who has died, verse 7, has been set free from sin. What can sin do for someone who's dead, Paul says? Nothing. Dead people don't sin. So if the old you died with Jesus, you have been set free from sin. If Christ has conquered death and we are identified with him, we are in union with him, then he has likewise broken the power of sin to condemn us, which means we have already overcome it and we do not need to define ourselves by it. The truth that Paul is communicating that's so radical here, that's so sometimes hard for us to believe and live by, is a truth that it's not merely that Christ enables us to overcome sin by ourselves. No, no, no. It's that he's already overcome sin for us. That's why a believer in Christ can now live in freedom from it because sin no longer has any power over you. You are already free from its power to control and condemn you. Resurrection power can't be newly earned or tapped into or received in any sort of different manner than the power of the cross can be. If you've accepted Jesus by faith, resurrection power is already there in you right now for living in freedom. Which is why Paul can say this, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, on the one hand, there's nothing particularly new or special here in verse 8. Eight, that he hasn't already said, other than making a clearer logical connection. If we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. But there's something really cool here I want you to notice in the text. In the original Greek here, for the phrase that the ESV renders, we will live with, Paul uses in the original Greek one word that could also be translated or understood as co-live. So Paul 
is saying here in verse 8, track with me, that if we've died with Christ in baptism, in receiving him by faith, then we believe that we are co-livers with him. If we have died with Christ, then we will also live with Christ. In fact, in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul does the same thing that he did with this word co-live when he talks about believers being co-buried with Christ in verse 4 and co-united with him in verse 5 and co-crucified with him in verse 6. So think about the argument that he's making here. Because believers in Christ are co-buried and co-united and co-crucified, we are also likewise co-living with Christ. And his victory over sin is our victory over sin. And since he lives forever, we live forever. We know that Christ, verse 9, being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, one time for all time, for his people. Because his death was enough to defeat the power of death, because his death was enough to defeat the power of death, for the death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So when Jesus defeated death, it killed the power of death for God's people, which means that that death didn't, death doesn't, death can't, and death won't condemn us. This amazing truth of resurrection power that's achieved for us as an accomplished fact through Jesus is why Paul tells us, and we'll end with this verse, verse 11. So you also, so you also, just like it is true for Jesus' victory through resurrection, so you also, notice, you must consider yourselves. The word here, consider, it means to count yourselves, to think of yourselves, to have a mindset about yourself as you already are in Christ. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, so like it's true of Christ, Paul says, you also must consider yourselves, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In the entire book of Romans, in grammatical terms, this is only the second command in the entire book of Romans so far. The first one happens at the beginning of chapter three. And Paul waits for this important moment in his argument for the second command, which is you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Because the power behind Christ's own resurrection is the power behind your own freedom from sin, Paul says, you must count yourselves in your mind as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So friends, think about this. If, if you have Jesus as Savior and Lord, your ongoing victory over sin is empowered by having a mindset rooted in what Jesus has already done. So reclaim for yourself today, on Easter, the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the grave. 
which means that if you have Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you've accepted him by faith, you are right now in this moment because of the work of Christ, you are free from the power of sin so that you can be and will be satisfied by God's goodness and his grace alone. And friend, if you do not have Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray that you hear the Spirit of God calling you to turn and repent from the sin that condemns you. Come and receive the grace of God that you cannot know apart from being unified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to teach us about what you've done for us in Jesus, that his perfects in this life lived for us, counted to be a sufficient atonement, that he was a substitute when he was sacrificed, a substitute for us because we deserved that wrath that you wanted to carry out on sin, but you did on Jesus so that we could have the same resurrection power that raised him from the grave, that by your power and glory, we can be made new and walk in newness of life. So Father, help us to consider ourselves, to have a mindset that is rooted in the truth of what you've already done for us so that we would live, so that we would continue to love the truth of the gospel for ourselves in ways that motivate us and teach us and shape us. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves so that the defeat and the discouragement, the personal intimate knowledge of our failings and our failures would, Lord, do nothing but point us to you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.